There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Many times when I share biblical truth with people who have not yet embraced it, and I ask them, what religion do you belong to? I get a response like this. I'm not part of any religion. I believe in being spiritual. Many people make this claim, especially those who are avid seekers of truth, who desire to know the true nature of God, the true nature of the universe, the true nature of whatever you might call salvation or enlightenment. They tend to gravitate toward this idea of being spiritual instead of being religious. Is religion bad? Are they making a correct assumption? Is spirituality really the answer or can it be misleading? Is there a proper balance between religion and spirituality or should one be embraced and the other discarded altogether? These are questions that need to be answered and the answers that I've arrived at, I believe, may surprise you because, well, they're not necessarily traditional responses to this kind of question. Let's begin by defining what religion is. Is that a bad word with a bad connotation? Or is it a modern connotation that makes people recoil from it to a certain degree? Where there are actually good definitions of the word religion. We'll see. If you were to go to a dictionary, the dictionary says religion is a set of beliefs concerning the cause, the nature, and the purpose of the universe, especially, underscore that in your mind, especially when considered as the creation. In other words, religion and a belief in God are connected altogether, especially when considered as the creation of a superhuman agency or agencies. That's a complicated way of saying it's either created by a single god or a number of gods or deities, usually involving devotional and ritual observances and often containing a moral code that governs the conduct of human affairs. So you have rituals, ceremonies, and a moral code, and it's all connected with some concept of a creator. It's a set of beliefs. It's a set of beliefs that uh, may differ from one cultural group to another. All right? The word religion can also mean the body of persons adhering to a particular set of beliefs. And so religion means not only the belief system, but the people who embrace that belief system. One source says that the word religion comes from the Latin word religare, 
which means to bind together. And that's interesting to me because if religion is something that binds you, it can be in a good way. It binds you to a belief in God, a specific belief in his nature, and it binds you to others in the same community that believe the same thing. And of course, that can be truth or it can be deception. Now, in my book, in search of the true light. And if you don't have this book, you should get it. It's an in-depth comparison of over 20 religions. I talk a lot about religion in the opening chapter of the book. And I mentioned that there are four basic kinds of religions, and I don't really have time to go into it in detail now. But number one, you have natural religion which is an innate sense in human beings of the existence of God. And it carries with it a sense of accountability to that God. And also it is triggered in human beings quite often by looking at the immensity and the intricate detail of the macrocosm and the microcosm. The universe strikes our hearts with wonder and it makes us believe there had to be a superpower that brought all of this into existence with his genius. That's natural religion. And that's been around from the very beginning of the fall of man, when there was a separation between mankind and the creator. He left us with this sense of his existence. Then number two is invented religion. Many of those who are influenced by natural religion and begin to explore the possibility of a God actually existing, then begin to invent myths and rituals and traditions in order to satisfy that longing, but they're not divinely inspired. They're humanly manufactured by the imagination. And then number three, there is revealed religion. Now, I personally believe as a follower of Jesus that Christianity in its true form, in its authentic form, is a revealed religion. There are other religions that make the same claim, like Islam or Sikhism, but I believe the only true revealed religion is found in the entirety of the Bible, in the blending of the Old and New Testaments. Then there's augmented religion. What do I mean by that? It's taking revealed religion and adding to it things that were never intended by the revealer, like rituals, ceremonies, traditions, and doctrines that were never unveiled when it first came into being. So those are the four main categories. Again, natural religion, invented religion, revealed religion, and augmented religion. And you should get the True Light book where I go into more details about all four. And also I talk about natural religion on an earlier podcast. It's podcast number 16 or 18, one or the other. So I would urge you to go back. In fact, I'll post it on my notes that you can see on cpnshows.com. I'll give you the link to the previous program where I taught on natural religion. Now, as we've already covered, religion involves a set of organized beliefs and practices, beliefs and practices usually shared by a community or group. And there's seven things that are involved. 
and I've already mentioned some of them. Number one, traditions. Number two, doctrines. Number three, rituals. Number four, ceremonies. Number five, ecclesiastical authorities. Number six, the claim that truth is objective, that it's the same for everyone. That usually is associated with a religion. And of course, that religion lays claim to the idea that they have an edge on the revelation of that truth. And then number seven, religion is often rigid, structured, and unyielding. Now, how do you compare spirituality to that? And there's a wide range of definitions for spirituality, but basically it means you follow your spirit, you follow impulses, you follow intuitive feelings, you go after supernatural experiences and encounters that validate your search and and enable you to have glimpses into the truth. And number four, uh, spirituality also involves a belief that truth is subjective. That means it's up to individual interpretation to be personally discovered and personally defined. Number five, that means spirituality is fluid, indefinable, unpredictable, and uncontrollable. Doesn't that sound like something people would like? Because now more than ever, people are of that mindset that they don't want to be controlled. And they associate the word religion with control. And they associate the word spirituality with freedom. But is that always the case? Now, I agree that religion is usually institutional. That means it's been encased or enshrined in an organization that has categorized the belief system and that belief system categorized by the institution is very unyielding to inspection or criticism even by its own members quite often. Spirituality, on the other hand, is personal, is personal, and it's more beautiful and more desirable as a result to many people who are turned off against institutionalized religion. And to be honest with you, I fit into both categories. Often religion is a matter of the mind, while spirituality is a matter of the heart. Now, do you discard your mind to follow your heart? No. Do you discard your heart to follow your mind? No. There's got to be a balance between the two. And I believe there is a proper balance, and maybe we can achieve that on this episode. A great example of this conflict between the two approaches, this, this contrast between the two approaches, can be found in the life and the teachings of Jesus. And I've got one example that I want to bring out. It's when Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field, and it happened to be the Shabbat, the Sabbath day. And at that time, I'll read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'll pull out some excerpts. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the grains of wheat and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw, so apparently there was a group of them that were tagging along, stalking him might be a more proper word, to catch him in something they could condemn him over. 
But when the Pharisees saw, they said to him, behold, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered into the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Now, let me explain for those who are not aware of this. The showbread was, consisted of 12 loaves of bread that were laid on the table of showbread in the Holy of Holies beyond the veil. And the next chamber was the, the Holy of Holies. It was in the holy place that was just uh, inside the tent-like structure that contained the Ark of the Covenant. And the 12 loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel that were offered to God like bread to satisfy his hunger for fellowship. And it was a sign of consecration and dedication. And no one was supposed to eat that bread except the priests, never. But David did because he was being pursued by Saul he was in a time of real conflict and crisis in his life. He was hungry. His men were hungry. So he tended to believe it was okay to bend the rules when you assessed everything in a pragmatic, logical way. And Jesus agreed with that behavior. He said, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath day, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. So he's saying that sometimes the priests bend the law, but they won't let the people bend the law. They're fierce about the people being completely aligned when they tend to compromise somewhat if necessary. But I say to you that one greater than the temple is in this place. And then here's the key verse. He said, but if you had known what this is, and he quoted from the Old Testament, from Hosea's writings, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned those who are not guilty. See, religion tends to put guilt on people who are not necessarily guilty because they don't line up with the rigid rules. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now there's a fabulous example. Now, of course, God did say that they should not do any labor on the Sabbath, but he never said, don't pluck the heads of grain on the Sabbath. And so they expanded God's original commandment and made it more specified, more specific, and they were fierce about their human interpretation of a divine command. That happens a lot in religion. That's what I described a while ago when I talked about revealed religion and then also the other two types of religion, augmented religion and invented religion. Men tend to take things that God says and expand on them or they augment what God says. Now, I'm not going to go into all of them, but you should read Matthew chapter 23 and how Jesus rebuked those who were considered to be examples of the most religious people in Israel to be admired and to be copied in their lifestyle. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, considered the Pharisees their mentors, the ones they looked up to. And listen to what Jesus said. Again, there are seven woes 
pronounced over the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes were those who made written copies of the law, and the Pharisees were one of the primary ruling sects in Israel. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, which are spices, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the others undone. So he's saying that it's okay to have religious rules, but it's more important to be a merciful person, to be a compassionate person, to strive for justice in human relationships instead of hammering and bashing people and destroying people in the process. So far, let's look at the results of what I've said. Religion creates, number one, people who can be, can be, not always, but can be very judgmental. And sometimes they use the rules and regulations of their belief system to wield a heavy club to feel a sense of superiority over others. It's not really out of concern for others, but out of a desire to be very critical. And that's number two. Religious people tend to be very critical. And number three, and this is very important, log it in your mind, religious people find a false sense of security through conformity. Let that sink in deep. Religious people tend to find a false sense of security through conformity conforming to a certain group, its rules, its cultural setting, the way you dress, the way you look, the way you talk, the words you use. You mimic those and you fit in this neat niche and, and try to be a duplicate copy of everyone else so that you're accepted and approved. That can be good in some ways, that can be very bad in other ways. Because if you become a carbon copy of other people, the real you may have been buried way down the road and the uniqueness of what God created you to be and to do may be lost forever because you conform to a religious group. This borderline cultish in some situations. Yet I have to support the fact, on the other side, that religious people tend to be very committed to the truth they believe in, while spiritual people sometimes are kind of flimsy in their commitment. They don't really have strict standards, and that's why they can be very loose in their own lifestyle or very free in accepting others in their loose lifestyle. That doesn't have to always be the case with people who embrace spirituality. Neither are all these descriptions absolute ironclad rules for people who are religious. Uh, so a lot of what I'm saying doesn't fit every circumstance. But you know, a good, a, a good example, a fantastic example of religion versus spirituality can be hinged on the object behind me, the Christmas tree. And I know religious people that are very firm, very severe, very fierce almost in insisting 
Jesus was not born on December 25th. Well, I believe he wasn't born on December 25th. That's the winter solstice. Uh, And he was most likely born when there was a Jewish feast that coincided with it because his death was on Passover. The coming of the Holy Spirit was on Pentecost. And so I tend to believe that his birth was on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a Jewish feast celebrating how God tabernacled with them in the wilderness. His glory was on the Ark of the Covenant and God was among them. And so that was fulfilled in a much more profound sense when God came in a human body in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I don't believe that December 25th is the exact birth date of the Messiah. However, I'm not going to be fierce against people that believe that or that celebrate that because I see the positive side of it. You can go to a mall and hear Christian music blaring through the whole mall on their sound system. Isn't it fantastic to hear Oh, Holy Night or Emmanuel, Emmanuel uh, being played to hundreds, to thousands of people that may not even know him. So to me, the good outweighs the bad. And besides, my wife is a Christmas fanatic and I like to watch her because she gets so much joy out of a day that celebrates the close of our civil year and more importantly, the unity and the love that's in our family, celebrating each other with gifts. And certainly that's not biblical necessarily, but it's a great cultural practice. And you might be one of those religious people that says, oh, but brother, let me take you to Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 3, 4, and 5, and I'll read it to you right now. Those verses say, for the customs of the people are vain. The New King James says the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe, they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. Well, of course this tree can't talk. And they must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Well, of course this tree cannot do any evil or good. But people like to pull out of Jeremiah's writings what sounds like an exhortation that this is vain and futile. When, by the way, this is not even one that's been cut down. It's plastic. So it doesn't fit the description to begin with. It's a celebration. It's not a false deity, which is what Jeremiah is talking about. He's not talking about a tree. Of course, he says in verse four, they decorate it with silver and gold. Yes, it's decorated, but it's a celebration of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. It's a celebration of family. It's a celebration of life. It's a celebration of the joy of living and being in a covenant relationship with God. Now, people who have spirituality are not going to be so unyielding when it comes to certain religious ideas. They'll be more pliable. They'll be more acceptant of others. Maybe they won't have a Christmas tree in their home, but so what? 
there's more good than bad. There's a whole lot more good because it's a celebration of the one who came to save the whole world. Now, let me define spirituality. And I'm sure I'll get some comments about what I just brought in as an example. Uh, Spirituality, people pursuing that at times are more easily deceived because they have no standards or fewer standards of belief and practice. That can be good, that can be bad. Number two, they tend to be tolerant people. They try to be tolerant of everyone, but that doesn't always work, especially when there's extreme compromise that is contradicting certain commandments in God's word. But people that embrace spirituality tend to have toward others a more inclusive approach as opposed to exclusive. Now, again, you have to draw the line somewhere, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Spiritual people tend to be free thinkers, and here's the key statement. They find security in nonconformity. Remember, I told you religious people find security in conformity. Spiritual people sometimes go too far. They push the envelope too far, and their security is in not being bound by any rules if they take it to an extreme. Now, I've been to both extremes. I've absolutely experienced both extremes in my life, and so I believe I've come to a healthy balance between the two. You see, I was raised Roman Catholic, And when I was a Catholic, I was blindly believing in all the doctrines and rituals of the Catholic Church. I participated in confession. I believed in absolution. I prayed to the saints, or the proper way of saying it is I would petition the saints to pray in my behalf. I no longer believe in these things now. I believe the church, the Catholic Church, was the one true church. I believed in the papacy. I believed in the Pope's authority and that at certain times he could speak in an infallible way. I don't embrace those things anymore because I was part of a structured religion that uh, imparted blind obedience to its followers. You don't question the doctrines and practices of the church, but when you compare them to biblical revelation, you'll find out that many of them unravel right before your eyes. So I've been there. And there's a lot of good, sincere, loving, genuine Catholic people who love God, love people, stand for good principles in their lives. So I'm not saying that all of them fit into one particular category, but that's a good example of quote-unquote religion. And I understand why people have recoiled from religion because many people in our generation, have been entrapped in denominationalism and organizational approaches to Christianity that were devoid of the presence of God, and it was just a system of rules and beliefs, and they extricated themselves from that, and many of them went too far the other extreme. I did, because when I finally started seeking after God back in 1969 and 1970, I was 18 years old, I became a yoga devotee and a new ager. Now, new agers open their minds and hearts to everything. It's just all inclusive. Just about anything goes. Uh, I believed in all the multiplicity of 
Hindu deities, 330 million gods and goddesses. I believed in Vishnu and Shiva and Brahma and, and all the things I was fed by different gurus and swamis that I sat under. And I unquestionably just embraced all of that because I was spiritual and not religious. But see, there's got to be some kind of balance where you actually critique what you're believing and find out if there's a basis for it. While you recoil from the rigid structure of a lifeless system, don't dive into the waters of religious syncretism and say, all things are true. Because see, I, I was of that new age mindset that you can have your truth, I can have my truth, and we can both be right simultaneously. But that doesn't make any sense when you really break it down logically. Because let me give you this example. In the second century, an astronomer and geographer uh, defined the universe, In his name was Ptolemy, in the terms that were accepted at that time, and he defined the structure of our solar system as being uh, centered on the earth and the sun revolved around the earth. It was an earth-centric approach to our solar system. A thousand years later, approximately, Copernicus came along and said, no, it's heliocentric. The sun is at the center. The earth revolves around the sun. Now, what if they were comparing their beliefs in a very spiritual, free-thinking way and what if Copernicus said, Ptolemy, if they were of the same generation and could converse, Ptolemy, you can have your belief and you can be right and embrace your truth and I can have my belief and I can be right and embrace my truth and we can coexist harmoniously. No, one of those ideas has to be right at the expense of the other being wrong. And the same is true when we begin to define God and our relationship with him and how we respond to what happens in this world and what we need to do to conquer the world, to overcome the world and become the people that God wants us to be. Now, I'm going to bring it to a close. There's a lot of territory that I haven't really covered, but I do believe you should pray about it. I should pray about it, that we find this proper balance between the two extremes. When I was a new ager, when I was involved in yoga, supernatural experiences were paramount. That was the most important thing. That was the litmus test of whether or not you were progressing in your belief. And yet the spiritual experiences, the supernatural encounters I had were all counterfeit and they were all demonically inspired. Because see, when you do not have a biblical basis for your belief system, you're more prone, you're more vulnerable, you're more deceivable, uh, you're more prone to being manipulated into believing things that are not necessarily true. So spirituality is good because it gives you greater freedom to love people, to be uh, like Jesus was, where he ate with sinners and publicans and tax collectors and the religious people were angry with him over that. And once again, he said, have you not read? I would have mercy and not sacrifice. He was constantly bringing that teaching across. The spirituality lends itself more toward mercy, where religion lends itself more toward a critical mindset. 
Let's pray about it. And let's become the kind of followers of Jesus that duplicate his behavior. And we're religious people in a healthy way. And we're spiritual people in a healthy way. And we marry those two extremes together. I hope it's been a blessing to you to hear this teaching. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.